Both boys were dressed flamboyantly in matching spread-collared white jumpsuits, like the outfit Evil Knievel wore vaulting over Snake River Canyon. Though the jumpsuits had name patches on the chest, like a mechanic's work shirt, an odd counter to the attempt at showbiz slickness. Donnie, posed in the front, held a less tall and looked a little stoned. Given the packaging in the era, late 70s, Louvier was certain. He expected teen idol cheese, a third-rate Osmond's knockoff. What he heard was something else entirely. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Stephen Kurtz. Kurtz is a features reporter for the New York Times, where he writes about style, culture, and design. I'll talk with him about a piece he wrote for Creative Nonfiction Magazine's new series, True Story. The story, titled Fruitland, is an expanded and more full version of a story he wrote for the New York Times in 2012 about two brothers who put out a record in the 1970s but didn't receive fanfare for three decades. And he starts promoting the record and sending it to collectors and things snowball and the record becomes a sensation. Prior to joining the New York Times, Kurtz was a staff writer at the Wall Street Journal and Details. He is the author of Like a Rolling Stone, The Strange Life of a Tribute Band, which was published by Random House, and which the New York Times called heartfelt and often hilarious. I'll also talk with Hattie Fletcher on this episode. Fletcher is the managing editor of Creative Nonfiction and is editing each installment of True Story. The new series publishes one big work of creative nonfiction every month in a mini-magazine. It just started in October with Fruitland. As usual, we've linked to some of Kurtz's work, as well as everything else that we talk about on the show, on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stephen Kurtz is a features reporter at the New York Times. He writes about style, culture, and design. In October, though, he published a story titled Fruitland in Creative Nonfiction Magazine's new series, True Story. Fruitland is about two brothers, Donnie and Joe Emerson, who put out a record when they were teenagers in the 1970s. The record went nowhere, but more than 30 years later, a collector of obscure records happened upon the Emerson brothers' work and set about to gain the recognition they deserved. Kurtz says he felt like the story he wrote for the New York Times, headlined A Time Capsule Set to Song, ultimately failed to be as resonant as the story deserved, and so he kept writing and ended up with Fruitland. Thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast, Stephen. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, let's start off uh, with uh, your reading a, a little bit from the opening of your story, Fruitland, uh, if we can do that. Sure. Um, I'll start, uh, I'll read the first few paragraphs of it. Some years back, an unusual and astonishing album began circulating among record collectors and fans of lo-fi music. Will Louvier was one of the first to hear it. A Bay Area vinyl dealer, Louvier is an authority on private press LPs from the 1960s and 1970s. Records that were self-produced and released by amateur musicians and destined, in most cases, for the bins of thrift stores and flea markets. In a year, Louvier and his fellow collectors across the country might buy 1,000 of these obscure albums between them. 
of those, maybe 10 would be artistically interesting. Maybe one would astonish. This record had been sent to Louvier by a collector, but still, his expectations weren't high. The group was a duo, Donnie and Joe Emerson. The cover featured a studio portrait of them. Teenagers with feathered brown hair, faces dappled with acne, sincere eyes meeting the camera. They were posed against the swirly blue backdrop you'd see in a school photo, with the album's title, Dreamin' Wild, written above them in red bubble script. Both boys were dressed flamboyantly in matching spread-collared white jumpsuits, like the outfit Evil Knievel wore vaulting over Snake River Canyon. Though the jumpsuits had name patches on the chest, like a mechanic's work shirt, an odd counter to the attempt at showbiz slickness. Donnie, posed in the front, held a Les Paul and looked a little stoned. Given the packaging in the era, late 70s, Louvier was certain. He expected teen idol cheese, a third-rate Osmond's knockoff. What he heard was something else entirely. Thanks for reading that. That's a great opening uh, to the piece Fruitland, which was uh, published by Creative Nonfiction Magazine when they started this new series called True Story. Can can you talk a little bit about how um, you first found out about uh, Donnie and Joe Emerson? Sure. Uh, I was tipped by a friend of mine, uh, a journalist named Brian Raftery, um, and uh, we go way back. He was actually my college, uh, uh, my editor at the college newspaper. We both went to Penn State, and uh, we we now live in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, we've been in the magazine industry in New York for many years, and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, I'll see a story or something that I think might interest him, and he'll see something. Um, you know, and might interest me and pass it along. So he told me about it, um, and then I started to research uh, a little bit, and I was just floored um, by, by the story of this record and, and what had gone on. And I can, you know, give it to you in a nutshell if, if, if uh, you know, you think that might help. Yeah, that would be great. Can you describe, yeah, just describe it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the basic uh, sort of elevator pitch is that uh, in, in 1979, uh, two uh, brothers, uh, Donnie and Joe Emerson, in rural uh, eastern Washington, they lived on a farm, uh, recorded an album. Uh, they self-recorded the record. Um, their father financed it, uh, put the record out. They had no contacts in the music industry whatsoever. You know, they're, they're living three, 400 miles from the nearest city, very isolated. Uh, they didn't even have a radio. Uh-huh. or a record player uh, until they were in their late teens. Uh, so they put the record out. It goes nowhere. Uh, and then 30 years later, a music blogger named Jack Fleischer finds the record in a thrift store in Spokane or a junk shop. And he has a blog, and he's sort of a proselytizer for you know these obscure private press musicians that have been overlooked uh, in history. And he starts promoting the record and sending it to collectors and things snowball and the record becomes a sensation and it gets re-released by a label called Light Me Attic that specializes in these private press releases. And, you know, the songs on the record show up in movie soundtracks. Uh, 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 Jimmy Fallon talks about it on TV. And, you know, for the, for the two brothers, it brought all this history back 
Uh, it was like they were going back to 1979 again and back to the farm. And there were good memories there, and there were painful memories mm-hmm. there. And especially for Donnie, who was the, you know, the the kind of musical genius, the creative genius of the two, it dredged up a lot of, um, you know, emotional and painful experiences for him. Right. You, you wrote about uh, for, you wrote about them in the New York Times in 2012, and I think that story was the headline was at least was a time capsule set to song. Uh, so I'm curious, what was it about about Don and Joe that stuck with you and, and made you keep writing about them, or at least keep thinking about them to where it turned out you kept writing about them? I did. Uh, you know, th- th- this a story like this, there were so many layers to it. I mean, you had the relationship of the brothers. You had the circumstances of them making this record. And I should say that, you know, the father took out loans mm-hmm. on the land to finance this, uh, this endeavor and, and spent over $100,000. I mean, the, the, these were farm kids, and yet they were using the same professional equipment that the Eagles used. <laughs> um, and, and so they lost hundreds of acres, all but a few, you know, acres of the farm through this. Um, and so you had this, you know, the, the, the parents making this incredible sacrifice for their children. You had that story. Then you had the story of, um, you know, of Jack Fleischer and the private press collectors, uh, you know, finding the record again. And, and there was just all this interplay between past and present. And I did as best as I could to get that into the New York Times piece. But, you know, it's a newspaper, and mm-hmm. it was like 25, 2,700 words, something like that, which is significant, especially these days, for a feature story. Mm-hmm. And my editor uh, there was wonderful, and we worked to, to make it as good as we could. Um, you know, but I was writing it quickly under deadline, and, uh, you know, I felt it really had the scope of a 10,000-word story. And, I and you know, it's tricky when you get these kind of pieces. Um you know, for a couple reasons. One is that you, you tend to want to squeeze everything into them. Mm-hmm. So you tend to want to, you know, at least I did, want to make a 10,000-word story and just fit all those elements into 2,500 words, and you really can't. You you have to choose what stays and what goes. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, a story this good, it, it, I, I kind of felt cho- I, I choked a little, mm-hmm. you know. Um it was like I, you know, I, I got a, a hanging curveball over the middle of the plate, and I was so focused on hitting a grand slam that, you know, maybe I hit a single or a double. Right. So I felt personally that I that the story in the Times was fine, and and you know, it got you know people liked it, and and the, and the Emersons were satisfied, and the label liked it, and we went on NPR and talked about it and things. But I personally felt like I knew that there was a bigger story there. Mm-hmm. I knew. There was a, a better, more nuanced version of the story than I had told. Um, and I did continue to think about it. I mean, I was so affected by Donnie's story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was so emotional for him. And, and he made this music when he was 16 years old. And the, and the record, the beauty of the record is that it, it captures what it's like to be a teenager. Uh, the the emotional landscape of, of being a teenager 
And so, you know, he was propelled back to his adolescence and, and I really felt for him and, and continue to stay in touch with him. And then the Emersons came a year after the Times piece came out. They came to New York, Donnie mm-hmm. and Joe, and did a, did a show at the Mercury Lounge on the Lower East Side. And that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for, you know, Joe still lives on the farm in mm-hmm. rural Washington. Right. So for Joe to come to the big city and for him and Donnie to play that, you know, show in New York, it was never going to happen again, and it, and it gave a nice ending to the piece. And so I felt like, well, this is the opportunity, then I can revisit this and, and, and add this element and really write it the way I felt like I should have written it the first time. Right. One thing I noticed uh, in Fruitland, uh, the new piece, is there is, in, in the piece itself, there is more atmosphere. And you know what I mean? Uh, more... It just it kind of mirrors the album, I think, uh, that you're writing about, and that there's just more, more there. Does that make sense? No, it does. I mean, and again, I think it's the difference between 2,500 words and 10,000. Right. You know, at, at, at a in a newspaper piece, you have to you have to do so much and so quickly. You mm-hmm. know, the nut graph, and and you have to you know you know get get the explain why you know very quickly high up why the reader is reading this and, and it, you can't sort of settle into a story. I mean, the true story piece, I took 1300 words just to, just to talk about um, the, you know, uh, how the record got to the point of being re-released. And then I went back into Mm -hmm. the story. So I just had, I had the chance, I had the space to um, really get into all the details and really I felt like for the piece, I felt like place was central to this story. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to get as much detail as I could about Fruitland, Washington, you know, population 500, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and get all that stuff into it. Um, so, yeah, I think it does have a lot a lot more atmosphere. Absolutely. Yeah, you uh, you led Fruitland with um, kind of the background on how the how the record got rediscovered. And why why did you why did you decide to start there? Uh, I get I, I, because I thought that um, I wanted to build intrigue into about the record itself and about the music itself, mm-hmm. and I felt once once I did that for the reader they would care about Donnie and Joe right. and they would care about this place, Fruitland, Washington, that they had never heard of before. I could, I couldn't just start with Donnie and Joe or I couldn't just start with Fruitland. You, I really needed to start the way someone would, if they were putting the record on and really being captivated by the music and I, and, 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 and hearing from these collectors, hearing from someone like Jack Fleischer or Will Louvier, who listened to hundreds, if not thousands of these kinds of albums, and hearing them say, this is really special, this is, a, this is a, a, a diamond, and, and we don't, you know, we don't generally find something like this, that would make the reader intrigued and care and want to know more. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, how much more reporting did you do once you realized you were going to do this longer piece, or did you rely mostly on your reporting from the New York Times story? I re- I relied a lot on the reporting from the Times story, 
You know, a, mm-hmm. a lot of it was there. You know, I spent hours with Donnie and Joe the first time around. Um, you know, I spent a couple of days there and talked to them extensively. Uh, and I talked to the other people involved, Jack and um, Matt Sullivan, who runs Light in the Attic and, and made the decision to reissue it. Mm-hmm. But I did go back to Fruitland because I felt I needed to um, spend more time on that farm, um, spend more time in, in, in that house, mm-hmm. in the house where Donnie and Joe grew up meet his parents and spend more time with them. Uh, and then I went to L.A. I happened to be there for another reason, and I met up with Matt uh, at Light in the Attic mm-hmm. and Jack Fleischer again, and we had longer conversations, uh, you know, and we also had conversations. I did more reporting around the, the, the uh, subculture of private press record collecting mm. for the second story because I felt, again, that was an element that just had to be scrapped the first time around because there just wasn't space for right, it. Right, right. Did you, uh, when, when they came and did that that show in New York City, um, which which is kind of where you end uh, Fruitland, uh, did you uh, were did you know then that you were already going you were going to write something more, or did that show kind of create that desire to write something more? I I think that. I think the show, yes, I think the show created the desire. I mean, after the piece was published, as I say, you know, it, it was fine, and I was generally happy with it, but I knew that I had, you know, a story of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not often that I've had these kind of stories. So I still had a kind of a nagging feeling. But after that show, and I describe it, as, as you say, I end with that, the atmosphere in that room, I've never been to a concert like that. I've mm-hmm. never... I never, you know, experienced something like that where every single person in the room, it felt like they all knew Donnie and Joe's story. They all knew the distance they had traveled to be there in that room, you know, you know, literally and, and sort of psychically. And, and they were all rooting for them. Mm-hmm. And it cre- it was just this wonderful, wonderful feeling. So after that, you know, that was, I think, 2013. I still didn't go back out to Fruitland until 2015, mm-hmm. and I didn't write it until the summer of 2015. But I, I, my feeling was, I'm going to do this to satisfy myself. I, you know, I have the t- I'm going to take the time, and I'm going to write this piece. I have no assignment for many magazines, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if they're going to take it because it, a version of this did appear in the time right, that I already right. you know, covered it. But I'm going to do it to satisfy me, and then I'll worry later if I can place it somewhere. And so that's what I ended up doing. Right. So so it you basically wrote it on spec speculation. Um you you did not know about true story yet when no. when you did it? Okay. No, not not at all. I mean, I you know, I had my list of magazines that I thought maybe would be interested uh-huh. uh and some, you know, literary magazines and things and I and creative nonfiction was on that list mm-hmm. and I sent it to Lee and he said, you know, hey, we're doing this this new publication called True Story, uh, and it's going to come out, you know, this was like in the fall of 2015. He said it's going to come out basically a year from now. I think this would be really great for it. And, you know, and I said, sure. And it, it was a, it's a perfect vehicle for it. I mean, it, it's, it was so, so satisfying and so cool to have 
a piece that's just standalone, you know, it's its own mini magazine and, and, and to get that kind of treatment for the story, um, you know, it couldn't have worked out better. Yeah. What was the, what was the process like? Uh, I mean, uh, you're a reporter, you've gone through, you've written stories that have been edited and, and published, but what was it, what was it like to, to work with uh, creative nonfiction for the true story series? Well, you know, I sent the piece in and I, um, the piece was in pretty good shape. You know, I had done a few drafts on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave it to a, a, an editor friend, uh, you know, here in New York that, that read it and, and critiqued it. Uh, and then I sent it in. And then Hattie and I, Hattie Fletcher, um, who's an editor there, uh, you know, and, and it was o- o- oversaw the process. Um, you know, we worked on it together uh, and to make it e- even better and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as best as we possibly could. Again, it was like, I felt like I didn't quite hit a home run the first time. I certainly was going to do everything I could, you know, to, to feel that I, you know, I did the piece as best as I could this version. So we went back and forth and she had, she had, um, you know, some, some, uh, great suggestions about things. Uh, she had some things she wanted you know, clarified. And then we did another round with, um, you know, a copy editor who, who also had some very good points. I mean, the other danger is I had lived for this story with this story for so long Mm -hmm. that it wasn't really fresh to me anymore. And I couldn't quite see the forest from the trees. Right. And so Hattie was great with that. And the copy editor that we worked with was great with that because they were, they were reading it with fresh eyes, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Uh, one thing uh, I love about uh, the the new story is the ending, and especially the last two sentences, uh, the way it just kind of comes perfectly full circle. Uh, how, how long did it take you to get to that as being the end of the story? Um, I, I, well, I guess it took five, four years in right. some ways, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but in other ways, I mean, there's a kind, there's sort of two endings. Mm-hmm. There's the ending where I end in one way at their house, you know, at this at the homestead where um, where they grew up, right. and and I and there's this line that in, in a traditional sense could be a kind of kicker line, you know, where Donnie says, you know, he's gone through this whole process, you know, and uh, you know the ups and downs of having this experience happen to him. And if he says, you know, if I died tomorrow, hey, man, someone got it, mm-hmm. um, right. you know, and, and in, a, in a way, that's a kind of, of ending. But um, I, I used the New York thing almost like a coda. Right. And, right. and um, you, know, a, a, you know, and it was sort of a, a second ending. And I was surprised that they uh, played with, they opened with Baby. This mm-hmm. song, Baby, on the record is... Everyone who listens to the record, you know, and every music reviewer has said this is a stone cold classic. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, it's it's like someone compared it to Stand By Me. Right. Uh, you know, so the fact that they opened with that, with their with their most known song and their best song, was was surprising. And the fact that they, you know, the last two sentences of the story, they played without a set list. They opened with Baby, and the played without a set list thing is the way is just about their relationship mm-hmm. as brothers and the, and the, you know, uh, mind meld they have, because a big part of the story is that 
you know, these guys are not 16, 17 years old anymore. They're in their 50s, and their lives have diverged, and making the record forced them to come back together. Um, and, you know, Donnie's musical abilities have far outstripped Joe's. Right. So, you know, the, the fact that they still, there was still some quality they had together that they could play without a set list, and just like they were boys on the farm when they were 16. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining the podcast to talk about Fruitland, uh, which is the first uh, the first installment in the Creative Nonfiction's True Story series. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I enjoyed talking to you, too. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. That was Stephen Kurtz, a features reporter at The New York Times and the author of Fruitland, the first installment of Creative Nonfiction Magazine's new series titled True Story. My next guest is Hattie Fletcher. Fletcher is the managing editor of Creative Nonfiction Magazine. She's also editing each of the True Story installments. True Story launched in October with Kurtz's Fruitland. Each month, a new single-story mini-magazine arrives in the mailboxes of subscribers. So far, two installments have been published. The third story, Muzzled, by Gabriella Denise Frank, will be out soon. Hattie, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, before we talk about True Story, I'd actually like to point out the fact that this podcast actually exists because of creative nonfiction. Uh, just about four years ago, I moderated the roundtable discussion on journalism as a form of creative nonfiction, and you all published it in the winter 2013 issue. And I think it was called Getting the Story. Does that sound right? Something like that. Yeah, it was such a great roundtable, though. But well, I thought you were already doing the podcast then. You know, yeah. I actually, um, so I did that over the summer of 2012, mm-hmm. uh, and then it ran in the 2013. Uh, so by the time the piece came out, I had started the podcast. But I started the podcast because I had so much fun doing that. Oh. Uh, and at one point in time, uh, uh, and and for those of you who don't know about about that piece, I, I, I talked with Chris Jones. Ben Montgomery and Thomas Lake, um, and we talked about journalism as a form of creative nonfiction writing. Uh, and one of my students said, "You, you, you know these people. Why don't you do a podcast?" And I was like, "What's a podcast?" And then so it kind of started from there. Uh, so by the time the piece ran, we had done two or three uh, episodes, I think. Um, but yeah. it literally came out of the fact that I had started that, and it was so much fun to talk about that. And I, I never felt like anybody was actually talking about that um at least not in the way i wanted to uh and and in the way that getting the story kind of started to uh and so thank you for that uh uh, i'm very happy that uh, i've been doing this this i think is going to be episode 48 oh my gosh um, and uh and number 49 is sitting and waiting to go uh and we'll have that ready so it's been it's been a lot of fun so thank you And uh, so let's talk about what you guys have launched now at uh, Creative Nonfiction, and that is the new series, True Story. Can, yeah. can you talk about it? Sure. Um, so it's a, um, it's a monthly publication. It's uh, the way we talk about it. It's sort of one exceptional essay per month. Um, it's sort of, um, you know, it's not a completely original idea. It's sort of like a nonfiction one story, um, really. But uh, we thought it, it came out of a few problems we were having at Creative Nonfiction. Um, one is that 
we don't, as the magazine has sort of grown, we've, we've lost a little bit of space for really long pieces. Um, and another thing is that as the magazine for a variety of reasons has moved to more strictly themed issues. Um, so the way we make it, we tend to announce a theme and we put out a call for submissions and everything goes together. Um, we haven't had a, a stream for general submissions to just sort of read essays. What we had found happened was that even if really great pieces came in, it's hard to build a whole magazine around one great piece. Um, so we had this sort of backlog of good writing, but we're sort of like, well, what goes with what? And it's, so writers were sitting and waiting. We were waiting. We were losing good stuff. Um, and And then we have readers who... Um, we have some readers, the most consistent feedback we've gotten in reader surveys to the magazine is people who wish we publish more frequently, um, which were kind of a tiny outfit, a nonprofit, um, getting the magazine out four times a year on time is sort of, I think the best we can do right now. Um, but we thought for those readers, it would be good to have something with more frequency. And it would also be nice to have something with sort of a lower price point um, that's a little more reader friendly to people who maybe aren't interested in, you know, the typical issue of creative nonfiction is 80 pages. It's sort of a it's a big read. Um, so for a whole lot of reasons, uh, we thought it would be interesting to try this monthly one essay publication, um, the National Endowment for the Arts. Fortunately, agreed with us, which was nice. Um, so we got a little bit of funding to start it up, and we are uh, we're expecting the hard copies of the third issue in our office this week. And so, can you describe like, what it looks like? I, you know, I've, I'm I'm a subscriber, and uh, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast because I think it's so cool. Uh, it's kind of like it's not a chat. It's kind of like a chat book. Uh, it's kind of like a chat for, in, in, in in terms of how it's. Anyway, describe what kind of what what it looks like. Yeah, so part of the idea was to keep the cost down, to keep it pretty affordable. So, um, you know, it's it's a stapled little publication. It's pocket-sized, so it's really portable, easy to pass along. Um, it's not really fancy on the layout, um, again, to sort of keep the overhead down, but I think it's nice. Um, one of the things that we've done with Creative Nonfiction Magazine when we, we redesigned the magazine in maybe 2010, I think, um, and one of our feelings was that these days, you know, there's so many, there's so many possibilities for publication, but if you're going to make something that's a print publication, um, you should make something nice. Um, so we try to, we try to make the magazine be something that people can keep on their shelves or, you know, it feels nice. Um, that's, that's worth having Uh true story is a little less fancy, but I think it's still, it's sort of nice. It has a nice feel. It's a little bigger than four by six, I think is trim size. I don't know what top of my head um but it's it it feels nice it's a good size to sit and read and then you can tuck it away so that's the idea um and so many of them come in one box it's compared to the magazine they show up (laughs) at our office and we're like oh my gosh (laughs) right right so um so i i just talked with stephen kurtz uh about his story fruitland uh which was the first installment uh can you talk the second installment is by stephen church uh and it's called trip to the zoo uh, can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? But then also, how are you, how are you deciding what what you want to include uh, as part of this series? Yeah. Um, so, right. Uh, Stephen Stephen Church's. Sorry, it's like our all Stephen magazine. Right. Um, <laughs> Stephen Church's piece is actually um, adapted from his book, which came out around the same time. 
um, which was called, I think, One with the Tiger. And it's sort of the story of a 22-year-old who in, I think, 2012 jumped off the tram at the Bronx Zoo into the tiger pen. Um, he survived, incredibly. Um, but I think the the story is sort of, the narrative is Stephen Church kind of retracing um, this journey to the zoo, but kind of trying to figure out what it is that drives people to these sorts of encounters with especially apex predators. You know, there's this, um, it's, it's, it's not a common thing, but it's not uncommon thing, this sort of desire to be up close with wild animals. And in fact, uh, one of the things he talks about is that that's, you know, that's a little bit what the zoo is about, right? Is, is having that closeness with animals. Um, and for some people that's not quite close enough. So it's his trying to trace not just the steps of this one person, which turns out to be, um, he says somewhere in there, he maybe underestimated his own journalistic abilities because he tries to sort of, you know, call the police who talk to the guy first. And he tries to get through the zoo bureaucracy, which of course in New York is tied to the city. And um, he doesn't get very far actually. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of investigative journalism, but it's also not because I think Stephen Church is not really an investigative journalist. I don't think he would say he's an investigative journalist, but so sort of the limits of how far you can trace a story and and what kind of information you can get and what kind of information you can't get. So, so it was a really nice fit. Um, and I think what we're looking for generally is, is a really wide range of stories because creative nonfiction contains so many different kinds of writing. So over the course of the magazine, what we're hoping is to really kind of illustrate that range of stories, but in each individual story. Um, and it's, it's, been a little trickier than I would have anticipated, to be honest. But we're looking for pieces that um, that do what everything we publish. Um, you know, we're trying to blend kind of information with really good storytelling, with um, some research, with style. Uh, but these stories have to be sort of substantial and really cover a lot of different levels. So it's not it's not good enough just for them to be a great page turner of a story, but it's also not just about the research. So each one really has to, um, you know, it's the whole magazine. So it has to be really, really good. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So how long are, are these stories typically? So they're, uh, they've ranged from about 6,000 words to about 10,000. Fruitland was about 10,000 words when we got done with it. Um, and, that's a that's a little bit longer than we've typically published in creative nonfiction, but it's a nice um, you can really sort of stretch out in that space, you know, so you can kind of sustain a long narrative and you can fit a lot of other stuff in there along the way. Um, so it's it's been a nice length to work with. It's been interesting editorially because it's a little bit longer than what I'm used to working with, but I think it's um, ideally it gives us a space to publish. Um, some kind of quirky, interesting stories that that have trouble finding homes elsewhere. Um, there aren't a lot of great places for publishing longer pieces like that. Um, it's kind of a weird length, ten thousand words, and also, especially in print, um, I think there are a lot of there are increasingly places to publish those pieces online. But um, you know, it's not always nice reading online. I think being able to kind of hold it in your hand, it's a different reading experience. Yeah. And you mentioned Fruitland at about 10,000 words. Uh, one thing I really found interesting about that is he wrote about those brothers in the New York Times mm -hmm. in 2012, I think. 
Uh, and this piece is just a way, a much more expansive piece. And he wrote it like having no idea where it would ever be published. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are, you are a writer out there with a, with a piece like that, that you've written, that you have no idea where it could be published, I would love to see it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's a good example. You know, he didn't have room to tell that story that way in the times, but it was something that, um, you know, my impression, at least, it's something that stuck with him and that he wanted to dive into deeper. Um, and that was sort of a little bit of an obsession. And so, um, you know, we were fortunate enough to get that end result of that. And and in fact, I think the version that we published as Fruitland was maybe 1500 words longer than what he sent in originally even. So, you know, there were some spots where, um, as we were working together, I was like, well, but, but what about this? Or, tell us more about that character or there was, um, there was sort of a little bit less about the family and especially about the mother, I think in the first draft that I saw and it was sort of had some questions like, which, which is a big thing of the story I think is this, you know, this really unique family sort of, you know, on this farm. Um, and the mother was from Italy, I think, right. Italy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so to to be able to put in those details and give that space as opposed to I think um, you know a lot of the a lot of his tendency was looking for places to cut in the first place and we we're like you could you could push that put that back in um, I think that's a really nice opportunity for for writers. You you mentioned the third one uh, should be coming or arriving in mailboxes uh, of subscribers here soon. Uh, how far out are you working on this? Uh, not very. Not very. <laughs> So, so right now I'm, uh, I'm working with the writer of the fourth piece, which will be out in mid January. Um, and then we're reading, uh, how would I say this? We're reading really actively for stories <laughs> after that. Um, how is this different for you to, to, cause you're editing these pieces. Is that correct? Yeah. So how is that different for you than from putting together the entire magazine? Um, it's nice in the sense that they're just those stories, you sort of don't have to think about all the bigger pieces um, and how they fit together and what goes where. Uh, the biggest difference I would say right now is it's really fast, mm -hmm. um, which which sounds kind of ridiculous. I mean, I know there are publications that you know, publish daily or weekly, um, but it really, uh, the quarterly magazine sort of has this rhythm and this monthly rhythm, it really, we get one out the door and we turn around and we're like, oh, we're behind already on the next one. So um, it's fast. I have so much respect for like daily journalism and, you know, that faster turnaround. It's amazing to me. <laughs> do, uh, you said you, you received a grant for this. So do you, is this something that you see going beyond the life of that grant? I hope so. Yeah. So we got a little bit of startup money from the NEA, which has covered, um, the design of the thing has covered the author payments for the initial, um, you know, the initial pieces covered some sort of infrastructure things on our end. So we had to like build out our circulation database because um, we do all those things in house. Um, we have funding for probably six um, of the pieces and then we need to figure out how to sort of make the, the thing more self-sustaining. So we're doing okay on subscriptions right now. We have almost a thousand subscribers, which I feel like for a thing that didn't exist two months ago, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the kind in the part of the publishing world that we're in, I feel like that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good number. Um, but we're going to do a major push for that. Um, and we're probably going to do some crowdfunding 
um, next year. So, um, what, uh, what, uh, do you have coming up in, in terms, you mentioned you're working on the fourth one. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that, but, uh, the third one, can you talk, describe just kind of what, what the third one will be? Yeah. So the third one, uh, the name of the piece is muzzled. Um, and the author is Gabriella Denise Frank. And she, uh, it's a more personal story probably than the other two stories. It's a little less journalistic. Um, but she tells the story of going to a shooting range with her father on her 18th birthday um, out in the desert in Arizona. And she mixes um, in with that sort of a lot of information about guns and ballistics. Um, she mixes in some information about school shootings. So it is, there is this sort of, um, recap of journalism element, but really what drags her piece is this tension um, because it turns out she doesn't have a very good relationship with her father. Um, and there they are out in the desert together with a gun on the shooting range. Um, so I, I can't say any more than that, but uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more of a page turner in that sense. Right. Um, a lot of suspense. Well, sounds great. So if somebody wants to subscribe, how can, how can they go about doing so? Sure. So uh, they can subscribe and print through us at Creative Nonfiction. So our website, creativenonfiction.org. Uh, it's also available on Kindle. So you can subscribe through the Kindle newsstand. Um, and that, uh, the they don't support back issues. So if you wanted to catch up on back issues, the um, issues one and two are available as just eBooks through Kindle. So it's sort of available on Amazon platforms, however you read your Amazon publications. Um, but then the, the print subscription is at Creative Nonfiction, and we sell a bundled subscription, too, that combines True Story with Creative Nonfiction magazine. Sounds good. Hattie, thanks for joining the podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. That was Hattie Fletcher, managing editor of Creative Nonfiction. If you'd like to subscribe to the magazine and True Story, we've put links on our website. You can find that at gangrethepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios and is made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield University. Technical help comes from Steve Cease. Our exit music was composed and performed by Noah Heyman. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for listening.